And now would you open the Word of God with me, please, to the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Many Western nations celebrate Christmas today, on December 25th. As we look back in history, it seems as though the first celebration of the birth of Christ took place about 98 A.D. It was not until the 4th century, however, that the date was fixed that we celebrate Christmas on. Just when Jesus was actually born, we do not know. The shepherds were out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks, so it must have been during the months that that was possible. And during the winter, that is not possible in the Holy Land. The Eastern Orthodox churches celebrate Christmas on January the 6th, as you may be aware. But most of our people in the United States celebrate Christmas on this weekend. Sadly, we have to confess also that the celebration of Christmas is largely secularized in our society. Even the religious aspects of it seem to have little genuine meaning to most people. Many people sing the carols, and one can even hear large crowds of people sing through the Messiah, and yet they have no real understanding, in many cases, of what they're singing. We would probably agree that Christmas doesn't mean to the world what it should. But the question I want to look at this morning is, what should Christmas mean to the world? From the Bible's perspective. We've talked about the meaning of Christmas to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the angels. And today we come to the world. What does Christmas mean to the world, or what should it mean as far as the Bible is concerned. We'll begin to uncover the answer here in Luke chapter 2, where we have two statements, each of them given by important persons around the Christmas story. The first one, an angel. In verse 10, the angel said to them, the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David... There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Notice that the angel says that the Savior was born for them, but the angel also said that this is a great joy. It is good news for all the people. We take that in the broadest possible sense, not just all of the Jewish people, but all of the peoples of the world. And then if you would look further into the chapter to the 30th verse, we have part of the statement of Simeon. He says, For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people, Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. 
To the world, it seems to me that Christmas ought to have at least three strands of meaning. The first one is that salvation is possible. As the world considers Christmas, the first thing that it ought to mean is this, that because of Christmas, salvation is possible. We ourselves must never get tired of hearing this good news. God knew what the world needed, and he provided it. Dr. John Egan, who is pastor of Grace Church Edina, wrote recently, What is the reason Jesus came to the world? What is it our world was most in need of? If the answer was better housing, God would have sent a real estate developer. If the answer was an improved financial system, God would have sent an economist. If the answer was a more effective government system, God would have sent a politician. If the answer was a greater vision of the cosmos, God would have sent a space scientist. If the answer was a more effective legal system, God would have sent a lawyer. If the answer was more religion, God would have sent a religious guru. If the answer was a healthier environment, God would have sent an environmental engineer. What is it our world was most in need of? The answer is a savior. That is what the world was and is today most in need of. A Savior who would rescue us from our sin and restore our union with God. A Savior whose mission was so wonderfully accomplished that we who belong to the family of God no longer stand in any condemnation before the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's what the world needed. A Savior. And that is what God provided. Simeon says it this way, My eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared. God prepared or God ordained this salvation of which Simeon speaks. It is not accidental. It is providential. God took deliberate action on his part to rescue sinners And apart from his action, there is no hope for the sinner. Apart from God's divine intervention, the world is lost. We must keep in mind that mankind is not merely defective and in need of correction. Mankind is not merely diseased and in need of healing. But mankind is dead in trespasses and sins, and needs resurrection. That truth is beautifully illustrated in an Old Testament story, and I invite you to open to the Old Testament this morning, to the book of Jonah, and the second chapter. If you have a Bible like mine, it's on page 1,378. The book of Jonah and the second chapter. You know, don't you, the story of Jonah. How that he was thrown out of the ship and was then swallowed by a great fish that God had prepared just for that purpose. And for three days and three nights, he was in the belly of that fish. 
You say, that's one northerner I would like to have caught. Yes, so would a lot of fishermen. I don't know what kind of a fish it was, whether a whale or some large kind of shark, but whatever fish it was that God especially prepared, it was able to ingest Jonah without doing much damage to him. And inside of the, the belly of that fish, God kept Jonah alive. Now, he was as good as dead, but he did not die. And from inside that fish, Jonah prayed to God. And the second chapter contains that prayer. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. Jonah seems here in this prayer, though he is right now in the belly, the stomach of the fish, he seems to realize that God is going to deliver him, that he is not dead and God has a reason for keeping him alive. And so as he prays, he places himself beyond this experience. You'll notice this as he prays. He already says, God answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, that is the realm of the dead. He sees himself as good as dead. Thou didst hear my voice, for thou hast cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All thy breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from thy sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward thy holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But thou hast brought me up, hast brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to thee into thy holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to thee with a voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. What an amazing picture and illustration we have in the Old Testament of what Christmas ought to mean to the world. It means salvation is possible. If there had been no babe born in a manger... There could be no Christ crucified on a cross. So as the world thinks of Christmas, let it first think of this. That salvation is now possible. Salvation is of the Lord. The world is dead in trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy and in grace, intervened in sending His Son into the world. And returning once more to our text in Luke, we see the salvation is prepared in the presence of all peoples. All peoples. It embraces all of mankind. Salvation is provided for all peoples without regard to race, color, or heritage. A light to the Gentiles and the glory of the people of Israel. Salvation is provided for all people, for all have sinned. All are in the darkness, the misery, and the slavery of sin. 
God has prepared salvation for all peoples because he loves all peoples. Without exception and without distinction, God loves all the world. And so today, because of Christmas, the birth of the babe, his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his glorious resurrection, because of that work of God... Salvation is possible for anyone who will call upon him and be saved. I want to be extremely clear about this. The babe in the manger cannot save. But the fact is, neither can the Christ who still hangs on a cross. It is the resurrected, risen Christ who was born, who lived, who died as a sacrifice, and who is raised from the dead. It is that Christ that saves And that is the Christ who with open arms invites you to come today and appeals to you to turn to him, believe in him, and to be saved. I don't know what your heritage is. I don't know about your religious background. I don't know the guilt that may hang over your soul today or that sense of being lost. It may be that you find yourself quite well satisfied with who you are But that pride is a barrier between you and God. But this much I do know, that God loves you. And this day that we celebrate on Christmas proves it, because He sent the Son, that He might become the Savior of the world, and that includes you. What a wonderful Christmas this would be if on this day you would receive God's Christmas gift to you the risen Christ, who will save. But as the world thinks of Christmas, there's another strand of meaning that I think that needs to be involved, not as pleasant as the first. For as the world thinks of Christmas, it must also understand that Christmas means judgment is inevitable. Judgment is the only alternative for those who put aside God's provision for sin. The birth of the sinless man who is also God provides a qualified Savior, but also a qualified judge who can and will deal absolute justice to humanity. There is no other one in all of the history of the world or the the, uh, events to come who is able to provide perfect justice but Jesus Christ. None other is so qualified morally or positionally to act as judge. But Christ is qualified. He is in the first place free from guilt of any personal sin. Therefore, he can act as a judge. And secondly, he has been given authority by God the Father to be the judge. So morally and positionally, Jesus Christ is qualified to be the judge of all men. As we think about Christmas today and what it means to the world, let us remember that it means judgment is inevitable. In verse 34 of our text in Luke chapter 2, we see this stated. Simeon says, 
Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus Christ is appointed by God to be the exposer of the thoughts of many hearts. Norval Geldenheis, in his commentary in Luke, says this regarding the text that we're looking at just now. After this, he addresses Mary, and for the first time in the gospel history, the coming struggle and suffering are referred to. He's talking about the sword that will pierce Mary's soul as she sees her son crucified. Geldenheis goes on to say, Jesus, Simeon declares, will be like a stone over which some will trip and fall and perish, but by which others will be enabled to arise and be saved. In order to fall, it must be assumed that a person is first standing. So these words mean that those who imagine themselves to be strong and high, who rely on their own merit and power, will come to woeful ruin and undoing because in their pride they do not realize their own need and doom and do not take refuge in Christ. But the humble ones, those who bend low at his feet with confession of sin and faith in him, will be raised up by his mighty arm to eternal life. The Lord Jesus Christ who was born into the world in that first Christmas is the rock of salvation for those who believe on him. But he is the stone of stumbling to those who reject him or neglect him. He is for the fall of those who turn from him, that their thoughts, their hearts might be exposed. Now God already knows what is in our hearts. He knows the secrets within each of us. But one day, if we do not come first to the Savior and be forgiven of those things, one day we shall stand before Him and the true condition, the true bias of every heart will be exposed before all by this judge. Salvation is possible. But judgment is inevitable because of Christmas. How Satan would like to have avoided the birth of the Christ... It would have meant release for him from his own condemnation. But alas, the Savior was born and judgment is inevitable because now one is qualified and appointed to be the judge of all men. Your sins and mine must at some point be dealt with. And they will be dealt with either now at the foot of the cross by our repentance and faith in Christ For they will be dealt with one day at the court of God before the great white throne at the judgment. Christmas means that God has provided a Savior. And to neglect that Savior that God has provided or to reject Him assures one of judgment. So let our joy on this Christmas be tempered by this fact. That to the world, Christmas also means the inevitability of judgment. But finally, we return to a happier theme as we think about what Christmas means to the world. 
It means that restoration is predictable. In the Gospel of Luke, turn back a page if you're in chapter 2, and look in chapter 1. In fact, if you have a Bible like mine, you turn back two pages. And in verse 31 of Luke 1, we see these words. The angel Gabriel speaking here to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The third meaning of Christmas to the world is this, that restoration is predictable. The kingdom that was promised to David will be given. The covenant privileges will be restored to his people. The promises will be fulfilled to Israel. The birth and the eventual exaltation of Christ, the son of Adam, guarantees that all that the first Adam, our father, lost when he fell into sin will be restored to him and to his race by the last Adam. The coming of the Savior, his entrance into the world, the first Christmas means that restoration of all things will happen one day. Not that all will participate For those who reject the Savior cannot participate. But there is a glorious day coming. A golden age upon this world. An age not based upon humanity. Upon human renaissance. But an age based upon the reign of the Savior, the Son of God. The one who is the Son of the Most High. The one who is the Son of David. He will reign over the house of Jacob and over the world, and his kingdom will have no end. To the world, Christmas means the eventual establishment of peace on earth to the nations of the world. Turn back with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 9 as we see a prophecy of this. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This familiar text, which says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. In those two clauses you find Bethlehem and Calvary linked together. The child born the manger scene, a son given, the scene at the cross. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. 
There are not a few people who spiritualize these words away and say that somehow this rain that is promised occurs only in the heart of the believer and that's all it will ever be. How wrong are those people who interpret Scripture in that way, at least in my opinion? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will fulfill literally what this says. And that is that this one who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace, will one day rule and the government of the world will rest upon the authority of his shoulders. And with righteousness and justice, he will reign over the earth. And that kingdom, which the Bible says will be for a thousand years, will stretch then on into eternity. After a thousand years, it will go on and on and on forever and ever. What does Christmas mean to the world? It means that restoration is predictable. All that our father Adam lost for us when he fell into sin, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, has restored to us and more and more. For not only will we reign over the earth, but in Jesus Christ we will reign with him over his universe, over his new creation, the new heaven, the new earth. What a future for those who are the children of God. That's what Christmas means to the world. Restoration that is predictable. But that restoration of all things awaits his second coming. For linked together in this text of just two verses that we've read, we have the first coming and the second coming. The first coming when he was born and was given as a sacrifice, as God's only son, that whoever would believe on him might be saved. The second coming when he will return to the earth to assume his position as king. However, even now, the Savior is able to restore the ruined lives of sinners who will receive him. He will one day restore all things, but my friend, he can enter your life today and put it back together. He is able to come into your heart and to remove the guilt and the shame of your sin. He's able to take out that pride that is so ugly and heinous before God. He is able to cleanse and to wash away those things that plague your mind, your memory. He's able to give you a new heart of righteousness. He is able to restore you today if you will call upon Him. Will you do that? Salvation is possible. It's now up to you. God's done His part. Heaven can do no more. It's your part now. What will you do to receive it? Remember this, judgment is inevitable if you reject it. Judgment is inevitable. Let him restore you today. Let him restore you and save you. Let's pray. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I wonder if there is someone here on this Christmas Sunday who would say, Pastor, today, today I want to receive God's gift. I want that new heart. I want restoration. I want forgiveness. I want the salvation that is possible. I want to flee from the judgment that's inevitable. And I receive the Savior 
in my heart as an act of faith. Right now, I place my faith in, in the Savior. My trust is in Him alone for my salvation. Would you lift your hand and put it down? We're not going to have a come forward invitation today. This is the invitation. But I invite you, if you've not received Christ before, to do it today on this Christmas Sunday. Be sure that I see it. Lift your hand and then put it down. Is there one? Oh, those of us who have done that, how we can rejoice. How we can rejoice on this Christmas Sunday. Lord, thank you that there is joy to the world because the Lord has come. And we would pray that earth would receive her king. May that day come soon when Jesus will return and establish his kingdom. Fill us with the joy of Christmas today. And all that it means to us who are the children of God. And this we pray in the name of that Savior who was born and who died and rose again. Even our Lord Jesus. Amen. I'd like for us to sing just a verse as the choir comes back up as we sing. The number 170, Joy to the World, the Lord is Come. Just a verse or two of this, and then we're going to close as we traditionally do with every one of us singing the Hallelujah Chorus. So would you stand with me, please, as we sing. Joy to the World, 170.